76%. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work, and your guest presenter today is Mr. Michael Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Andrew. All right, ready for action. I'm feeling a Absolutely. little... Absolutely. Yeah, a little feisty because it's your birthday this week, isn't it? It is. Secrets out? I'll look forward to a party invite. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about the future of farming in Hong Kong. The government has just unveiled an ambitious new plan to increase annual crop production fourfold to 60,000 tons of something within 15 years. <clears throat> it hopes to do this by pushing for the adoption of modern and high-tech farming techniques with technical and financial support from the government. A new urban farm will be set up in Ma and Shan next year with the authorities aiming to integrate more similar facilities in new towns in the futures. And after 9.45, lo, of a virgin birth, a rhinoptera javanica is born. Three wise men, including Mike and I, will explore a virgin birth at Ocean Park, a miracle of the scientific kind. Ocean Park is revealed eight months after the fact, the birth of an endangered blue-nosed ray via, uh, born via artificial insemination, a world first. We want to hear what you think about that and uh, farming in Hong Kong. Leave a message on our Facebook page, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or call us on 233-88266. And we're going to kick off today. Uh, we got a couple of guests on urban farming, starting with Professor Lam Han Ming, Professor of Life Sciences at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Professor Lam. Good morning. Great to have you on the show today. Um, and uh, so we want to know, the government has come out with this big statement that we want to quadruple production of uh, farming output in Hong Kong. What I mean... Where is this? Where is this coming from? Uh, there was some talk of being competitive um, in in the announcement by the Secretary for Environment. Who are we competing with? Canada, Australia? I mean, what, where is the drive for Hong Kong to improve its uh, agricultural output? Well, I guess there's several reasons, right? So um, the sector has been pushing the government to do something to maintain the agriculture and fishery um, industries in Hong Kong because they're both uh, traditionally important um, uh, activities in Hong Kong, like connecting us to our period uh, uh, culture. And there has been a lot of movement to increase the um, amount of um, production in the cities so that we can reduce uh, carbon footprinting and also uh, somehow uh, maintaining some self-sufficiency um, possibilities. So like in Singapore, in Shanghai, they have uh, actually set up a quite ambitious um, uh, target to reach. So I think after many years of uh, uh, struggling <laughs> from the farmers and the fisheries, um, fishermen, uh, the government finally come up with a long-term plan. I, I welcome this because it will probably be the, the first long-term plan for a long time to uh, make sure that our agriculture and fishery can move forward. So the government even uh, set out a plan to have uh, priority lands for the farming. They have the agricultural park. Then they even adopted the um, urban farming concepts by having uh, some um, uh, yes, establishments in those uh, housing projects, such as the newly um, uh, uh, planned to have in the Maon Sun. Uh, uh, one of these, the Mount Sun Recreational Area, to, to, to build some, some forms of uh, 
greenhouses or other urban agricultural facilities that the citizen can enjoy and actually... Sounds like interesting times ahead. Professor Lamai, can I ask you about fish? Um, are we talking fish farms at sea or are we talking fish ponds or are we talking fish in high-rise buildings? I remember opening a fish farm in a high-rise building ooh, must be 20 years ago now. And I, yeah, because I thought the government was trying to get fishermen out of the business. I thought they were buying their boats and you know to try and re- try and regenerate Hong Kong's uh, fish stocks. Well, I, I, I'm not in the area of fish, but I, I, my, my understanding is that the government is trying to uh, introduce more scientific um, approach and also uh, facilitating to to have the trade organization and uh, so that they can build new facilities for. Uh, mariculture mainly. So um, that, that's uh, because it's not in my area, so I cannot answer too much about the fisheries. I'm, I'm in the area of agriculture. Right. You're more land farming, is that right? Well, that's, yes. that's why, and land as we know is in so much demand, whether it's for agriculture, as you've been talking, or housing or everything else, the northern metropolis and so on. It uh, seems to me the fish ponds are nearing the end of their, of their reign. Yeah, I, I believe that there will be uh, multiple approaches, uh, uh, including those also in the sea and and uh, in some of those uh, fish ponds. Then, that, yes, I agree that the government has different priorities. So uh, having housing for the citizens is one of the major priorities, developing of uh, new high technologies and other. So it's, it's very difficult to finance for uh, agriculture and, and fisheries. Hmm. So that, that therefore, uh, I am very happy to see the government has assigned some areas, the agricultural priority areas, so that they are not going to develop into something else, but retain it as uh, agricultural activities. Hmm. And they also have the agricultural parks, with stage one and stage two. I think that when it's fully launched, right? So the stage one is around 11 hectares and the stage two will be 83 hectares. It's not very much for agriculture, but it's a suggestion that the government will maintain the agricultural activities in Hong Kong. Right. What about the economic advantage or comparative advantage, economic theory, that, you know, we're not a farm? And we've got a huge farming land uh, to the north. Uh, we, don't, we don't welcome villages that put up signs saying International Financial Centre in Guangdong Province because that's what we are. Um, why, are we, why are we giving this emphasis to agriculture? Mm. Yes, I, I guess uh, the, the amount of land that aside for agriculture does not mean that it's the main emphasis of Hong Kong to become an agricultural <laughs> city. So urban farming is a concept that has been adopted by many important, uh, important places, right? So even Singapore has uh, yes. put in a lot of money to build urban farming. So my, I, my um, thinking is that first, agriculture should be tied up with citizens. So uh, although we are a financial center, but our citizens know how the food comes from and how it was produced so that we can respect the farming business and also respect the soil and land that will protect the environment. This first. Second, I think uh, if you solely depending on transportation from elsewhere, it will increase a lot of 
carbon footprint because the transportation from far away will bring to a lot of carbon footprint. Production locally will reduce the carbon emission. Right. That is one of the important tasks of uh, the Hong government to, to, to achieve carbon neutrality. And also, uh, I think for production locally, for example, with, uh, when the people can gather together and see how, the, how, the, how their vegetables are growing, I think it, it is also a way to have the uh, citizens to gather together to talk about some common interest issues and, and become a, a community activities. Right. So for, for those uh, uh, like greenhouses built, I, I can give you one example. Right? So we have uh, a K-Park in Kalanji Town. Right? Oh. That is a big greenhouse. Is it, is, it the K, is it the K-Farm right on the waterfront? I just... K-Farm, sorry, sorry, sorry. K-Farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I walked yeah. by there and I actually took a picture of it on Saturday because I was like, what is this? It's like a little greenhouse with some, uh, they're growing stuff inside, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry, it's K-Farm. So it's in Kalanji Town. So this is a very successful example because um, people can go and see how their vegetables are growing. So it's the it's a glass houses, so people can, people can look inside. It adopted some uh, new architecture and um, new uh, hydroponic uh, facilities. I think this, this will also gather people uh, and do something together. Because outside the, um, the K farm, there's also some small area that the community can grow, uh, go, some, go, go something there. As a community activities, right. so so this concept I think is quite good. There's so, several aspects, yeah. aren't there, of growing things in the urban area? One is that it's good to have green around. It it softens people's uh, eyes. It makes them feel more comfortable. Uh, it, it lowers temperatures too. I think if you have lots of green around on the rooftops, on the rooftops, and uh, just in it. But there is a problem, isn't there? How can you have crops with earth? to grow in unless you have strengthened the buildings. Yes, I, I guess um, that it, it depends on which building uh, we are talking about and which plants, which kinds of plants that we are growing. So we have a building ordinance to require certain um, uh, wage that per area the, the, the rooftop can, can hold. Sorry. So um, I, I think in Singapore that they use uh, the rooftop to uh, grow uh, vegetables and build greenhouses because uh, they are, the, the amount of waste that they can withstand is quite high. I think in, in Hong Kong, there are different buildings. So if they match the requirements uh, so that they can uh, hold heavy weight, right. yeah, that, that was one way. Or they can grow something that do not require so much soil. Mm. For example, if this is hydroponic, right? right? You mentioned hydroponic, and I was going to come back to that because that—that's precisely right. You—you you don't need earth for that, right? Yes. So, yes, soil is very very heavy, so hydroponic will will be light much lighter. So that that some uh, scientific way that we can uh, help to reduce the weight required for the rooftop to uh, to to stand. Yeah. And and you I still mean, need water. Water is heavy. Yeah, I've, that's my follow up. You still need water for hydroponic. Yeah, so actually the hydroponic is not, in modern hydroponic, it's not like you, you soak the whole plant in a, a lot of water. The, the water is keep running. The, the, actually, the advantages of, of hydroponic is to reduce water use because the, the water will be running and they recycle and uh, the, most of the water will be finally used by the plant. Right. So, so, so it is um, possible to use uh, 
to minimize the amounts of water used and yes, can keep the plants growing. Because it, it's a sort of trickle, isn't it? When you, when you say water running, it, it's like in the shower, you're gushing, but it's not. It's, it's trickling, just the right amount of water to help the plant to grow at that moment. Uh, yeah, not, not, not exactly. Yes, yes and no, okay? So because um, the, the water yeah, is running, then they can replenish the nutrients if necessary. So for, for the hydroponic um, uh, applications, uh, in addition to water, there are also some um, uh, fat, uh, minerals or other nutrients required by the plants being added in the right amount after measuring uh, some of the like the issue conduct conductance or something to, so that you can add the right amount of nutrients. So the, the nutrients and solution will, will will be will be running through the root. So the the plant just take up what they need, right. and then replenish with new uh, solution. So that can minimize the water use as well as minimize the nutrient use. Should... I think that is, that is the advantage. The only thing is they probably will lead to have some uh, electricity. Uh, yes. Usage during the summer, <clears throat> yeah, because uh, the temperature must be well controlled. If it is too hot, the vegetable cannot go well. So, so you've so got to provide, it. and you've got to provide climate control, and you've got to provide light. Uh, so, if the hydroponics are maybe water efficient, how about energy efficient? When you grow something outside, you know the sun just rains down on it like the rain rains down at it. But if you're doing yeah. hydroponics, you've got to control the environment, which uses a lot of electricity, and you've got to provide ultraviolet lights. Yes, I think that, that's a good point. So the first, um, when you go indoor, this is uh, more, more risk-free, because if you go in an open field, when that is the drought, or there is heavy rain, too hot, uh, too cold, mm-hmm. so the field will get total loss right, in, in some situation. But if you want to grow stable food, like rice, wheat, um, maize, that is, they require lots of uh, energy from the sun. That, that I think it's still necessary to have some open field agriculture. For the indoor agriculture, I believe that uh, vegetables, some melons, tomatoes, it will be the best um, uh, uh, things to grow in, in indoor uh, greenhouses, right. because uh, first you can have some so-called anti-climate uh, vegetables. So when the, when the weather is very hot outside, when, when you can uh, control the temperature, you can still grow vegetables. And the vegetables uh, is going very fast. So you, you take a, like one month, two months, you already have the product to go to the market. The turnover is fast, so that uh, you, you don't have to keep the same uh, plant in, in the greenhouse for a long time, and this, this will uh, get get revenue fast, and also prevent accumulation of disease and insects like that. So, so, so yeah. in the in the greenhouse, you've got you've got on the upside, you've got better water efficiency. <clears throat> on the downside, you've got higher energy consumption. On the upside, you've got less chance of having your whole crop wiped out by weather or disease. Uh, is there a difference between the quality of product? And uh, just from my experience in Canada. Uh, you know, when the cannabis industry took off, greenhouse production is generally preferred for industrial level production of undifferentiated <clears throat> cannabis. It goes into products. You don't really know what it is. But if you're making a, a special kind that everybody wants, you know, like, oh, it's got to be this species or this type, then maybe outdoor growth is preferred because, you know, then they could let's like wine. They can talk about the terroir and all that kind of stuff. Is it the same for the kind of agriculture we'll have in Hong Kong that greenhouse is just you need you need tomatoes you can put in a can. 
fine. Grow them in the greenhouse. They can come out fast, efficient. But if you want like really nice tomatoes that actually taste like something, um, then you should grow it in an outdoor environment. Is, is there a differentiation between kind of mass produced in, inside and maybe a little more uh, artisanal on the outside? Yeah, I I think you you are making a good point. Right? But I want to add one more thing. So the advantages of uh, the indoor uh, agriculture is that they can do multiple layers. So that is not possible in the open field. Yeah. So in the open field, that uh, the soil um, can actually contribute to some favor of the uh, agricultural product. So so the water. Um, and the soil they come from the local area, they they may have uh, lead to some special favor that people will like. I I, I agree. And also, if that area has some historical um, uh, uh, memorization of something, then people would like to go there and harvest the vegetable there, right? So that that is the advantage of um, retaining some open field agriculture in Hong Kong. Right. Do you think we could become? Self-sufficient in any particular vegetable? Well, I, I guess the, right now the, um, our sufficiency is 1.6% for the vegetables. So after 15 years, the blueprint is to have it uh, raising three times. So still, right, like 5% or something. Single digits. <laughs> yeah. Single so digits. I, I believe that uh, this is not a way that we can totally um, have a self-sufficient vegetables, but it is a way that to show that we have we are committed to reduce the carbon footprint and also respect the activities of agriculture. Uh, that is one how, of our traditions. How about ultra-artisanal vegetables? You know the Japanese have those square watermelons that sell for like a thousand US dollars a pop. Do you, do you, has anybody in Hong Kong talked about making some like ultra white radish or some Hong Kong specialty thing that could be renowned around the world as the best of its kind and sold for ridiculous amounts of money. I mean, if we're going to go with what little we have, we should go high value, yes? Oh, yes. I think this is also what the um, uh, industry is, talk- is thinking about. So uh, if we can make some um, special brand Hong Kong products, I think at least the, the Hong Kong citizen will be power of them and, and try to support it. So it, instead of growing something uh, like very uh, like low in, in price, that we, we require a hard, high, large quantity, this is more important to build something a Hong Kong brand with some uniqueness. So that's something that you have mentioned. I think that will be the, the way to go. So, so, so in Hong Kong, we, we will probably advocate organic farming, uh, and also special uh, Hong Kong products that is coming from our city. Mike, that's, that, that's a good one for our Facebook page. People can go there and say, <laughs> what specialty products should Hong Kong make, like the great Hong Kong brand? Mike, what's your, I don't know what your pick would be. Uh, well, uh, lem- lemons. Lemons? Yes. Hong Kong lemons. No, because uh, I drink a lot of gin and tonic. And, uh, <laughs> it's like a slice of lemon. And I guess you could go with lime as well. Oh, Hong Kong Right. Uh, Professor Lam, do I take yeah. it that for you, one of the big advantages of this policy and this framework is public education, bringing people uh, to be more familiar with how our food grows? Yes, exactly. So I, I believe this is an uh, integration of uh, upgrading the technology while letting the citizen know what's going on. And it can be a, uh, a STEM education project. So by bringing st- students to look at how uh, new technology 
um, can be implemented to a traditional activities of farming. That well, of course, the greenhouses or in the future maybe some um, application of AI or whatever is all possible. Right? Automations. There are also uh, other area like how we can improve the uh, vegetables uh, uh, growth and and any new new brands of uh, vegetables that we can uh, generate for the farmers. Then we can expand the principles also from biology to engineering to uh, chemistry. So we have multiple uh, purposes of education can be achieved by bringing those uh, students to look at the, the new farms, especially in the agricultural part that they have, they have, they'll right. be. I like um, the idea of AI in vegetables. Yes, I, I think that this is um, uh, a lot of uh, um, attempt to collect data from the field and try to uh, optimize the cultivation. So I believe that in the future, when we have enough data for the greenhouse or field uh, uh, cultivations, then we can um, model a, a, a better way for production and quality. So, so then uh, AI will play a role because we, ha- we can collect a lot of data, but uh, we can do human calculation and human modeling, but it will take some time. Right. So if we can implement some uh, AI facilities so that we can model it faster, then we can come up with a, a, a better way for the, for the cultivation. For example, in the greenhouse, what kind of light, what kind of wavelength, what kind, how much water to, to, to give and how much nutrients to give. Right. I think all these can be, can, we can use uh, the modeling ability of AI in the future. But as Andrew was saying before, one of the big issues here is got to be flavor, hasn't it? I mean... Uh the AI may tell us so much, the computers may tell us so much, but at the end of the day, some guy's got to sit down with a knife and fork and eat some. Do we have terroir? Do we have terroir to produce great-tasting Hong Kong-branded produce? Well, I, I believe that we can input our data to, to the system. So if we, if we can have a taste panel and, and tell the, 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 the computer what is considered as good taste from the human. Maybe we can do that. So I, 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 I believe that uh, when we, we can change the formulation of, of the greenhouses too to, to get to a slightly different flavor. But as you, as you said, uh, that is always something on the ground, right, in the soil, that is very difficult to replace in the, by in-house farming. I agree that. So those could be also some important brand of Hong Kong products to, if they're produced from a particular area, uh, with a particular uh, history or culture or some other values. We've got an email from Marcus, and Marcus uh, very simply says uh, in a handful of words, but we don't have any land available. Uh, thank you, Marcus. Uh, now, we've been talking about hydroponics. When I asked the question about terroir, you kind of said, oh, we can use science to figure out what tastes good and make it in the lab. Um, does that is, is that kind of your way of saying that we don't have enough land to really bump up our agriculture and we will have to rely on a more greenhouse industrial style to, to hit these production numbers? Yeah, I, I think in Hong Kong or other uh, highly populated cities, so it's very difficult to set aside uh, agricultural land to, to make all, all, all the food needed by the citizen. But one way to do it is to use uh, those uh, in-house farming so that we can have uh, multiple layers. We can use the area that's not supposed to be agricultural land, and we can prevent the uh, 
drastic weather damage, right? So, so it is a combination of two, particularly in in cities. Now, if you're in the rural areas with a lot of land, of course, uh, you you can say uh, let let's go on the land. But for the for the whole world, I believe the arable land has been reducing because of the the development of city and industry. So, for example, in in, in China, right? So we have. 20% of the world's population, we only have 5% of the world's arable lands. So making use of the, the city area, uh, some indoor farming, uh, vertical farming, 3D farming, it's a, it's a way to, uh, to help. Right? It cannot replace the, totally the traditional farming, but true, it's true. a way to, yeah. So, uh. That is very true. Uh, thank you very much to Professor Lam Hon Ming, who's a professor of life sciences at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. I uh, appreciate having you on the show today and for enlightening us on Hong Kong's agricultural future. Lots of interesting ideas there. Quick hit on the weather. Mainly cloudy, sunny intervals of the day with a max temperature of around 19 degrees. The week is looking great, fine and dry, most of it. Some rain patches tonight, but generally it's looking to a great run up to Christmas. Currently on Back Chat, the uh, temperature, it is 17 degrees Celsius and 76% humidity. I'm Andrew Work here with Mike Rouse. Quick break for the news. <music> It's 9.30 and now the news with Ben Jie. Security has been stepped up at West Kowloon Court as a high-profile national security trial of former media tycoon Jimmy Lai gets underway. Mr Lai, the founder of the now-defunct Apple Daily Newspaper, is accused of colluding with foreign forces to endanger national security and conspiring to print seditious publications. The chief executive is expected to meet with state leaders in Beijing this afternoon. John Lee arrived in the capital yesterday for a duty visit. He will brief leaders on Hong Kong's latest economic, social and political situation and will return to the SAR on Wednesday. And the Center for Health Protection is warning the public not to eat wild plants after a woman was admitted to Ratonji Hospital on Saturday after consuming the toxin calcium oxalate raphide, the stinging crystals in plants. We'll have more news for you at 10. I'm Bloomy the Tree. When you see my Treemark logo in a shop, it's a social enterprise. Social enterprises provide diversified products and services. They're dedicated to contributing to society. With a self-sustaining model for their continued development, they create job opportunities for the disadvantaged, building a caring and harmonious society. Visit sehk.gov.hk for more on the Treemark. Let's support social enterprises and help them bloom. There are reasons to be happy everywhere you go in Hong Kong. Enjoy local and global cuisines and have fun along the way. Get immersed in the world of light, shows and carnivals. Joyful moments for all. Want to explore special bazaars? They are just around the corner. Pop culture? Victoria Harbour is our stage. Happiness is all around you. Come and join us. Taste the joy, share the fun. Happy Hong Kong. And we're back on Back Chat with me, Andrew Work, and my main man, Mike Rouse. All right. I, we got a guest now. Yes, we do have a guest now. We have the almost Dr. May Wu. She's a PhD student in economics uh, and the Hong Kong University Edible Space Ambassador. Good morning, May Wu, and welcome to the show. Um, hello, Andrew and Michael. Thanks for involving me in the discussion. Hey, great to have you on today. Uh, May, what, okay, first of all, just to get it out of the way, what is, an, what is an edible space ambassador? Tell us about that. Okay, so um, 
Edible space is a concept uh, proposed uh, in, by the University of Hong Kong for long, which could be um, get back to a little dream, that is to uh, grow our own food on campus. And since then, a rooftop farm was set up in year uh, 2013, and thereafter a herb garden was established in year um, 2018. So working as the um, university's edible space ambassador, I was trained to be a volunteer to host regular uh, community activities to engage the newcomers or the city residents in the organic farming or horticulture practice and uh, interdisciplinary studies. Yeah. Okay. So are you, are you inviting the people, for example, of Sai Yung-Pun and Kennedy Town to come on campus to participate in that? I think, yeah, yes. Um, we uh, uh, we will uh, send out the event information to uh, all the residents near uh, by the university's community. Uh, it's open. It's also open uh, for the whole. Uh, uh, university staff and even students. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got an email here from a different Mike, not Mike Rouse, but one of our, I, I suspect it's the Mike that regularly emails us. And he says, anyone taking bets, I bet the government spends 10 times more money than any agricultural endeavor ever makes. Just add this one to the solar wind subsidies and chalk it up to taxpayers' folly. Government lost its chance when it allowed farmers 25 years ago to fill in their farmland with coal ash and construction waste for container parking lots throughout the NT. Hate to say I told you so, but it is what it is. That's from Mike, not Rouse, different one. Um, so, mate, what what is your take? Like, you're you're talking about, uh, you know, kind of initiatives on campus, but broadly in Hong Kong, um, can you talk a little bit about the the uh, the economic case for it? Uh, we touched on it just a tiny bit in the first half hour, but not really. Um, between hydroponics and in the dirt agriculture, how economically viable is it unless it has heavy government subsidy? Um, sorry, so you want... Uh, Will it make money unless the government is constantly pushing money into this sector? I mean, will it, will it be able to stand on its own two legs economically? Um, you mean whether or not the government should put efforts to promote the urban farming? Uh, I mean, if, if they do, will it be able to stand on its own? Like, would it be, if, if I had a plot of land, could I farm it profitably unless I was constantly getting government money to kind of prop me up? Do you think it, do you think it's it's viable economically? Uh, honestly, honestly speak, I don't think I don't think so. No. Yeah. So, so you think it does need government support? Um, I think government could uh, put some efforts uh, into the uh, event to promote awareness. Uh, to call on people's attention and values on urban farming, but we never uh, rely on uh, urban farming to make large uh, uh, profits. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, the reason when we covered it in the first half of the show, we were talking about comparative advantage. Now you're in economics, right? Yeah. A student economics. So, and the example I quoted there is that we don't expect. Uh, rural villages to be international financial centers. Um, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> why yeah. do why do why do we look at cities to produce food? Okay, so um, as a research pro postgraduate student with economics background, we mm. all understand that nowadays people are concerned with Hong Kong's status as the financial hub, right? So. 
as a service-oriented economy, the daily consumption of uh, fresh vegetables in Hong Kong much relies on imports, of which only about um, 2% is supplied by local farms. So such transportation in the traditional uh, food distribution system will result in greenhouse gas emissions and increase the burden of the city's carbon footprint. Right. Yeah. So uh, on one hand, we could see a series of rural uh, sustainability projects conducted by perhaps um, one center for uh, civil society and governance uh, in the University of Hong Kong. They try to initiate a revitalization program to the abandoned farmlands uh, in New Zealand to bring it back to life by, uh, by cultivating uh, locally produced coffee lands, which are of considerable economic value. But uh, we could never expect Hong Kong to transit from an international finance center to an agricultural-based economy. Right. Is so, this, this is a sort of extra. It's uh, yeah. around the fringes of our main economy. Um, do you think part of the advantage is bringing ordinary people to be more familiar with agriculture? Uh, or we could use another much more broader concept, be more familiar with nature. Right. Mm. Yeah. Which, which, so, yeah. Mm. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, so I just want to put an emphasis uh, on the meaning of promoting urban farming in the university, especially among the young generation. So I guess the answer lies in Avelis. So what we are doing is to call on people's attention and Avelis on the sustainable and green living while the experiential learning in urban farming. Yeah. Right. And as long as we are doing this and improving their knowledge and, and their understanding, we also, in a minor way, reduce the carbon footprint from all of the importation. Yes. Do, I mean... If it's not, I mean, Hong Kong is 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 not going to be an you know, agriculture powerhouse. Although we did discuss potential for maybe creating some, you know, very unique Hong Kong niche brands at the high end. Um, but does it provide us with a little bit of a cushion in case there is a time of disruption to supply chains? So we had COVID, and I think a lot of you know there were there were massive spikes of uh, cost in a lot of produce during that time because supply chains were disrupted. The trucks couldn't come down from China. Boats weren't going. Uh, air cargo was disrupted. Uh, and we did see spikes in pricing. Could we produce enough to, you know, obviously the city is not going to survive on its own agricultural output, but could it provide a little bit of a cushion or, a bit, or buy us some time if there were disruptions to supply chain in the future? Um, uh, to be honest, I don't think so. No. Yeah, because, because uh, we all know that uh, the, the reality in Hong Kong is, is that it's restricted by the limited arable land resources. Mm, yeah, right. it, it poses uh, difficulties for us to supply the whole population of Hong Kong just by ourselves. How, yeah. how keen are you on hydroponics and growing products in, inside, indoors? Uh, we, uh, in our urban farming practice, we have tried uh, the hydroponic uh, technicals to, um, yeah, try the hydroponic cultivation. But um, 
um, it can partially um, it can partially resolve the problems posed by the limited land resources, but I don't think um, it is suitable to apply in a large scale. Right, it's a question of scale, isn't it? Well, I yeah. mean, but I mean, you think scale would be bigger? I know, I know. In uh, you know, I was talking earlier than the show about you know, kind of places where they have agricultural industries. And I know I used to live in an agricultural area, and you would have a lot of open air, you know, traditional agriculture. But they would also have greenhouses. They would choose to use the same land for some crops in the middle of traditional agriculture. They would build greenhouses, and they've been there for thirty years. Clearly, economically viable. Um, does hydroponics make more sense when you do it at scale? Like, I mean, what you can do in the university, I mean, what are you going to do? You got a lab, right? But if you can build a giant facility, is it more viable? Mm, the cost to applying the hydroponic cultivation is also much, much higher than the traditional farming. And actually what we are talking about today is urban farming. I don't think it's it's the same as the traditional farming because we try to make it to be organic and oh. sustainable, yeah. Right, the trouble with organic, when I go to the supermarket, the ordinary eggs are one price and the organic <laughs> eggs are <laughs> a different price. Um, I think uh, the, tradition, the, traditional far, uh, the traditional farming relies much on the the machines and also the chemical-based fertilizers and uh, the pesticides. But uh, for the urban farming we're talking today, uh, we try to make it into a sustainable cycle. Yeah. Mm. All right. So there are uh, different aspects of this debate, and uh, there are pluses and minuses. I think we're just going to have to accept that cost is a disadvantage and scale, but there are gains as well. Yeah. I mean, the government puts a lot of money into things that are not viable on their own because it has other objectives that they want to achieve. And so I'm sure this will be part of the debate going forward. May Wu, thank you for joining us on the show today. May Wu is a PhD student in economics. Good luck with that PhD. I'm sure next time we have you on, maybe it'll be Dr. Wu. <laughs> thank you so much. That's great. Thank you for coming on. That's a Hong Kong University Edible Space Ambassador and PhD student in economics. May Wu, thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right. And just in time for Christmas, uh, Ocean Park has revealed a virgin birth. I don't know if the timing of this uh, release uh, was intentional, but uh, it certainly is thematic. Uh, because the birth actually happened in April. The April is the name of a blue uh, cow-nose ray, uh, ray skates, as uh, people might call them, uh, who was born, created through artificial insemination at Ocean Park, the first in the world. Coming to talk to us about it on the show today is Dr. Paolo Martelli, Director of Veterinary Services of Ocean Park, Hong Kong. Good morning, Dr. Martelli. Yes, good morning. How are you? Very good. Uh, it's a bit of a double act on the Paolos over there. Isn't the chairman of Ocean Park also named Paolo? Yes, different spelling. <laughs> different diff different yeah. Paolo. Oh, yes, okay, that's right. You're, you're a letter different. So please, um, uh, tell us about this cow-nose ray pup. We've got three wise men to talk about this uh, virgin birth here in the lead-up to Christmas. What, what have you done? All right, first of all, sorry to... to change the, the the title of the story but it is not a virgin birth that's oh. the whole that's the whole point was there, um, there was a father involved 
there is a father involved. That's what makes it exciting, actually, because it's the first time that a uh, artificial insemination is successful in a species of uh, viviparous ray. So this uh, this has not happened before. So vir virgin birth refers to babies born in the absence of mating. Um, this is not the case here. Okay, but uh, so, so where did you get the where did you get the uh, sperm donor? So we got the sperm donor also from our collection. Mm -hmm. So we, we took the semen from uh, one of our males, and then we inserted it in uh, one of our females, and uh, the female became uh, pregnant. So when the pup was born, then we did a paternity test and confirmed that uh, the male was indeed uh, the male we used was indeed the father. Okay. Did, did you try more than one male? So we tried uh, three females using two males, but uh, each female received semen only from one male. And what, uh, what scientific breakthrough did you have to surmount to make this possible? Because it's the first in the world. That's a big accomplishment for Hong Kong. Um, but what, what was the challenge that you had to uh, overcome to make this happen? Well, there, there are many technical aspects to being able to do this. Uh, one is obviously keeping the fish in a condition where it's uh, growing well and becomes fertile. So these are animals that have been in our collection for more than a decade and are doing well. And then after that, we had to learn to handle them safely and uh, collect the semen and then to process the semen so that the semen stays uh, vibrant and fertile. And then we had to learn how to handle the females safely and how to find the entrance to their reproductive tract and then how to insert the semen in a way that you would then be able to fertilize the, the female. Did, so there are quite a lot of technical uh, bits and bobs to figure out. Did you have to track their ovulation cycles as well or is that not as big a deal in, in, in rays? Well, it, it is it is a big deal, but it's probably one of the biggest unknowns to date for the not just for the race but for the for the whole group. Uh, we're not very sure exactly what the cycle is like and how to uh, assess the cycle. So that is still one of the big challenges ahead for all the teams working on this. Have we tried um, natural mating to give birth? Uh, they, they have tried it. <laughs> we haven't. Uh, yes, <laughs> they have tried it, and we haven't had any pups. Uh, no, we have had some pups, uh, also through natural mating. So natural mating obviously refers to the the part where the male and the female do all by themselves. Right. The, because it, this is a, a part of a, a research uh, study of uh, figuring out how to reproduce these animals in the absence of both sexes. Uh, we had to take animals that we know are fertile and we had to take animals that uh, we know will give us a chance of success. So we actually do have natural mating also taking place. What is the significance of this latest pup? Well, significance, of course, is that it's the first and uh, you can only be the first once. So we're very, very happy about that. Uh, but I think more uh, more practically going forward, it just means that it's possible. It's a proof of concept. It means uh -huh. that uh, the techniques we have uh, developed uh, both for semen preservation and uh, insemination uh, are actually viable. And that gives us uh, new uh, ideas and new motivation, and not just to us, but to other teams also working on these, uh, on these matters, that it is possible and it's worth keep, uh, keep trying because success is just a matter of uh, figuring out the finer details. I nope. see that the gestation period was 
longer than usual. Almost 20% of the what, max. Yeah, what yeah. was the significance of that and what was the cause? Yeah, that was really interesting to us. And I think it's part of the, the advantage of studying these things in a, in a fairly controlled environment like an aquarium is that we have the exact date of insemination and the exact date of birth. And when we compare that to the literature, we're looking at uh, data from uh, observations that are not as fortunate. They observe the mating season in uh, in the wild, or they observe some mating taking place in the aquarium, and then they count the days to when they see the pup. But that means that there are many observations that may have been missed. So those were suggesting gestation of 47 to 53 weeks, which is actually quite wide already, suggesting the observations are not that um, that precise, probably. And then we, on the other hand, had the exact date of insemination and the exact date of birth. So it, it, it caught us a little bit by surprise and it gave us a few cold sweats uh, <laughs> when he wasn't coming up. And... Yeah, it... and does it, does it relate? To, I mean, do you have any idea? Do you think, A, do you think that maybe the, the, the literature on the subject reflects the inaccuracy or, or lack of precision of previous measurement? Do you think it might be related to the fact that you used artificial insemination? Or do you think it might be behavioral factors that influence them living in a tank as opposed to living in the ocean? Well, it, it's going to be hard to um, to exactly describe what, why that's different. Also, we we're talking about one data point, you know, which our... Uh, ours was uh, 61 weeks and then others were 53, but we don't really have enough numbers to start making significant uh, statistics right. and comparisons. So I think what it does is that it expands the range of non-gestation periods. So now it's instead of 47 to 53 weeks, we can say it's 47 to 61 weeks. Yeah, so that's, then, yeah those others may have been similarly longer than 53, but we didn't know because we didn't observe uh, the natural... Uh, joining together it's possible it's possible and it's also possible that this is a species where the gestation period is quite variable and may be influenced by temperatures or they may be influenced by uh, uh, synchronized parturition so maybe the school tend, tends to give birth all around the same time it's going to be hard there are many hypotheses that are actually going to be quite hard to uh, to prove one way or the other this mm. ray I see was on the endangered list, are you going to be doing this with any other endangered species? Yes, yes. The the, the species is already on the endangered list, as you mentioned. Uh, it, during my lifetime alone, the, the numbers have decreased by half or three quarters, uh, and so it's, it's quite significant. Uh, there are other species that are even more uh, endangered, and it gets to a point of endangerment where the animals that are under our human uh, control, under our human care, become a significant part of the population. And uh, when that's the case, then obviously having been able to develop this kind of techniques is a, is a big bonus in ensuring that we can maintain the numbers and the genetic diversity as well. So this is a work in progress. Uh, the threats that are causing extinctions are not going away. If anything, they're amplifying as we speak. So this this work is relevant in that uh, in that respect. You had a, you you hinted very obliquely at this in some of your earlier comments, um, but with the artificial insemination, you know, hopefully if we can help to breed these, and that you know, the typical path is that you help to breed these in captivity, and then you can reintroduce them into wild to help support wild populations. Um, but then the other the other pathway could be uh, creating an embryo outside of the animals and then implanting it into a female to bring to gestation. 
is this pathway that you are following of artificial insemination, does that take you to other options for replenishing the population or is it an alternative pathway? Like, I mean, if you said, will this help you perhaps to create embryos that you could then implant in multiple females? Or have you already decided maybe that's not going to work? We should try artificial insemination as a more promising line. So I think producing producing embryos and so forth are all part of what is covered under the umbrella of uh, assisted reproductive techniques and uh, the um, the ability to replace embryos in in uterus uh, is uh, done in other species as well in in some routinely because people started doing that earlier in others is still a bit of a dream ahead. Um, I just want to be calling uh, the attention to this kind of work is not going to be able to replenish the oceans, yeah? Mm. The oceans were replenished through the natural breeding of species that are safe in the ocean. Mm. So let's not give the impression that by breeding a few animals in a few locations, we're fine. We're not. The oceans are dying and that, that, that's a separate problem. Uh, so, so this work is really to look at uh, other species where either species where the numbers are already so small that what we have in hand is significant part of what's left on the planet and if we lose them they're lost forever or anticipating some species that are going that way we can start work now and and so forth but be, be careful not to not to suggest that because mm. we can put a few animals in a tank then the oceans are fine that, that is not uh, an association we what, want to would you like to say a bit more about the diversity of the gene pool Yes, so in, uh, in the natural uh, world, uh, the diversity within a species between individuals is a central element in the ability of the species to survive the many, many challenges that will occur in its evolutionary um, history. So let's say for species that have been around for hundreds of millions of years, or dozens of millions of years, as, as you can imagine, the environment changes quite a bit during that time. And when the environment changes, some animals just die off and others don't. And the difference being that some are adapted to the change and others are not. And that is captured in the genetic diversity within a species. So when we breed animals, it's important to try to preserve as many of these genes that are, are hidden. We don't see them. We don't know what they do. They may not be relevant now, but they may become relevant uh, in the future with uh, environmental changes. And so when you have very small numbers of animals, your gene pool is obviously smaller. And if you don't breed carefully, then you might inadvertently uh, cause a disappearance of a number of genes that may actually be very important for the species' long-term survival. In a sense, they become almost too pure. Uh, the concept of purity is uh, not something that makes sense in the in the biodiversity world. It's something for maybe for for either breeders or racist politicians. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's not something that has a place. I, in I was it. meaning that the the gene pool doesn't it, it, it becomes smaller and smaller. Yes, that, that is a risk, and uh, you, whenever that happens, then you may uh, encounter concentrations of genes that are actually what we call deleterious, means that they have a negative effect on the individual, sure. and then that further uh, threatens the survival of the right. species. Right, because when the changes happen that you were referring to, they're not as well able to cope. 
Correct. They don't have the, the inherent tools that uh, in, in within their bodies to survive the change. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think this is one of the reasons that we don't we don't talk about junk DNA like we used to. I mean, is it is it correct? The scientific establishment now thinks maybe it isn't junk DNA. Maybe it does have a purpose. We just haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, we 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 are just scratching the surface of what uh, what uh, DNA is doing. I mean, the the genome the genome sequencing is a very new science, and there's a lot of work going on it. But obviously, you know, there's a lot more to find out. Junk DNA, I think, was a term that was kind of an expedient term for all the DNA that we don't understand that we don't really have time to look at now. So we just put it under junk category, more like a. You know, like yeah. the, the pile of stuff on your desk that you'll get to later. Yeah, yeah, and then we realize maybe it isn't junk. Maybe it's quite important, just we don't know. Uh, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, what's next for you? Now that you've had this, this, you've kind of hit this milestone, do you refine the technique so you can, you know, help to replenish or maybe help others that are doing research in similar areas, maybe with a cow nose ray, maybe with other rays, maybe with other species uh, that are related to it. I mean, what, what is next on your list? When I, when I studied biology, the professors always told me you should finish every, every, every paper that you publish should always finish with further research is required because then you can justify more funding. What is the next step for you? Yes, uh, we, this is actually part of a, of a work that we started uh, six, seven years ago, taking an interest in shark reproduction. And uh, we've been working with colleagues. And then just recently this year also, we have done the first trans-border semen exchange with colleagues in Singapore, where we're exchanging semen from some of our sharks and rays to, to their side and vice versa. So we are continuing to explore the ability to exploit our skills and our animals to advance the science and the conservation. So in this case, bringing in semen from animals that would never be able to meet otherwise and uh, for the purpose of maintaining genetic diversity. We are still trying to perfect techniques in uh, preserving the semen. Uh, we are trying to perfect uh, our understanding of the cycle of the females. There, there's enough, uh, enough open questions for many lifetimes. Uh, so this is a work in progress. It's just that this is a very uh, significant milestone for us and it's very motivating and it's, uh, we think it'll be motivating for other teams also working on this difficult topic. All right, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Paolo Martelli, and congratulations to the team at Ocean Park for this first scientific accomplishment. Uh, Dr. Paolo Martelli is the Director of Veterinary Services and he and his team were responsible for the first if our by insemination birth of a cow nose ray. So, and it survived. It was born in April and is so named. There we go. Thank you, Dr. Martelli. Thank you very much to Mike Rouse for rocking the airways well, with me today. Hey, team is back. Yeah, we love it. It's a great day. Tomorrow, uh, I'll be on again. I'm doing a lot of back chat this week. I'll be on with Ada Wong. So that is all good. Thank you very much to our producer today, Monsieur Raphael Blet. And he uh, was on today within the booth with our audio engineer, Tong Wing Ming, who made us all sound great. So thank you very much. We got Back Chat the rest of the week leading up to Christmas. This has been Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work.